The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. You know that family whose house you hung out in when you were a kid? The house was a little loud and chaotic, but always fun, and sometimes felt more home than home. Well, that's us. We're the Wilsons, and we welcome you into our podcast with silly chat, ridiculous games, and interviews with interesting people. Like a spin doctor. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. Welcome home. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? What do you do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Cult Worthy Classic. I'm your host, Antonio Palacios. Today, on a very special episode, one of my favorite cinema podcasters and just one of my favorite people in the world, even though we've never met, my friend Nikki E of the Here's Looking at You film podcast. Nikki, welcome back to the show. My heart. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I always want to talk about anything with you, but especially movies. You are my movie bro in arms and so happy to be here. Absolutely. We've had two great episodes together. We did The the Bad Seed, episode number one, which was yes. probably one of my favorites of both shows that we've ever done. And then we did Whatever Happened to Baby Jane twice. <laughs> so fun. I mean, in both times, I think we got more out of, we got something out of each of those times, even though you guys didn't get to hear the first one, but it was amazing. Wish yeah. you guys had gotten to hear it. And the second one sounded more polished because we'd already had some of our answers ready to go. But we did have new insights. We did have new things that we caught. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad it worked out that way. Same, same. And I'm so happy that we kind of get to catch up now and I get to hear some some sneak, sneaky picks of yours. Some sneaky picks. So the name of this episode is The First Time I Saw. Nikki and I have put together a list of films. We don't know what these films are of each other's, but we want to talk about the first time we saw a film that really changed us. The guided path to our cinematic history, I'm sure is very different. We came from different backgrounds. We came from different parents and upbringings. But if there's one thing that remains constant, it's these films. And they never change. People change with them. People change because of them. And that is why I wanted to have this conversation because it's going to give me an insight to, like I said, one of my favorite people in the podcasting industry. So I'm going to be learning a lot of new things about you today. And hopefully you're going to be learning some things about me that you didn't know. And it's just going to make our friendship that much tighter. Literally cannot wait. And I, I, I've been waiting on this all week. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's just jump into it. Since you are my honored guest, my beloved guest, I would like for you to take the first turn on films that you saw for the first time that changed you. Ah, okay. So um, one of my first films that I'd like to talk about today is a film um, from the 1930s called It Happened One Night. 
you expect to get to New York at the rate you're going? I, but, but that's none of your business. You're on a budget from now on. Not just a minute. You Shut up. You've got a name, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a name. Peter Warren. Peter Warren. I don't like you. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a smart Alex. Nobody knows anything but you. I'll stop a car and I won't use my thumb. What are you going to do? The system on my own. So <laughs> this film, the first time I saw it, I, ha I was in a film class in my freshman year of high school. Um, they let us do a film studies class and we studied, you know, we watched Citizen Kane. We watched um, Night of the Living Dead. We watched a couple different movies, but it happened one night was um, fun for me because it was, first of all, probably one of the first older movies that I'd seen, like pre-code. And um, it also, I can remember sitting in this classroom and I was such a, a class clown and we were watching this movie and I kept being like, when's it going to happen? Is it going to, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? <laughs> and we were just waiting and waiting and waiting and watching this film, which, you know, in, in essence, obviously it's called it happened one night and it's the whole culmination of the film is the happening, obviously. Yes. But there's this sort of like underlying themes of like the working class and like what was going on at the time and like poor society versus rich society and this like other sort of like integrated story that they kind of put into this like love story. And it was the first time that I'd watched one of those films and realized, you know, when you watch a lot of those older films, especially as a young kid, you see this like surface story. It's like boy, girl, are they going to get together? Girl talks really wistfully. Boy talks sort of like this, especially Clark mm -hmm. Gable, mm -hmm. you know, but you start watching these films and you realize like, oh, they've got these like themes that they like had to like figure out how to put into the film without actually putting them into the film because like society wasn't ready for us to talk about that. Right. But um, it was the first time that I realized like there's themes underneath these like pretty whimsical, glamorous movies, you know? Absolutely. And you know, that, that was on my short list, but I've already got a Frank Capra <laughs> on my list. So I didn't want to have two Frank Capras. I could even say that my whole list could be Frank Capra if I wanted it to be. But right? I, I went a different direction. But yeah, that was definitely on my short list. And somehow I knew that was going to be on your list. You know, and almost the exact same experience. The first time I saw it was in my film studies class, my sophomore year in high school. They let mm -hmm. us take a film studies and film history class instead of an English elective. So I did yep. that all four years of high school. And that is where I got a lot of early experience with some of these older films. And I grew up with my, my mom and dad who watched these older classic films, but not many Clark Gable films. My dad didn't like Clark Gable for some reason. He just, wow. I, I don't know what it was. I never asked him about it. I, I think there was something about like that charming flamboyancy that he had that maybe just rubbed him the wrong way. My dad was a Charles Bronson fan. He liked uh, the, man's the, the man. knuckle men, you know. But it happened one night, I mean, I tell you, the play between these two characters, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, 
is the blueprint. It is the cement of all romantic comedies that have happened ever since. You know, mm-hmm. this whole boy meets girl, girl meets boy. They don't like each other at first. It's kind of cats and dogs. But then it all comes together. All of a sudden, magical moment. One night. Yeah. Like, if you go back, this is, to me, the spawning pool for films like that. Yeah. And for it to be such a simple plot um, that doesn't really feel like it has so mu- uh, much substance. I feel like it's one of those movies that if you watch, like old films, it's one of those like, okay, well, you've got to go watch this one. This is like a, a must watch. And how many times have we seen films duplicate the famous hitchhiking scene? Yes, the <laughs> leg. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, it. ah, it's so perfect. So perfect. And that shoe, uh, I still think about that shoe. So for people that haven't seen this film, what would be like your selling points? What would you tell them how this changed you after the first time you saw it and how it may change them if it's their first time to watch? I think um, when people think of old films, uh, a lot of people think of like gooey, um, mm-hmm. soft women and very um, rugged um, uh, Cagney type men um, and you know, in this film, we see a girl with some sass and she's got a, a, a little gumption to her. And, and you can see the way that they play off of each other. It it's one of the it's one of the best will they won't they films. And at the end of it, you really you're happy that they that they will, you know, in, in the whole movie, you kind of know that they will. But at the end of the movie, it feels really good when they do have that moment what is it a sheet that comes that down they divide at the, the room with yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. The, yeah the sheet that comes down at the end it's almost like that yeah at the end <laughs> it's a very like glorious moment even though you know it's coming it's, yeah feels really glorious that's a great pick i'm so glad you brought that one and like i said i i, I had this feeling i feel like i know you better than i think i do that that was gonna be <laughs> on your list well nikki since you went with capra i need to go with my capra of the first time I saw this film and it changed me and my appreciation for old films. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in 1981 and I grew up, I'd say from like old enough to watch TV to start like putting my own movies in the VCR with Disney films and maybe some like 80s comedies and things like that. But my mom was really into American movie classics Turner classic movies. We used to watch those afternoons of like three film noirs or three comedies hosted by Bob Dorian. You know, I I became a very educated in these older films from watching this guy present them. And this film, the first time I saw it, I was probably five or six and I would just watch it on my own. I would get the video cassette, put it in and watch it by myself without my parents. That is Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, Mr. Brewster! <laughs> uh, don't you... Come on, dear. But there's a body in the window seat! Yes, dear! We know. Mm. <laughs> so good. Oh my gosh. 1944, go. Cary Grant. 
Raymond Massey. You've got this classic screwball comedy based on a play, and a lot of those screwball comedies were based on stage plays back then. What makes this one so fun and just memorable for me and how it changed me was how you could set a film in one setting, like a stage play. It all takes place in this house, and the scene changes that would normally be functioning on a stage play of like maybe turning the set around or someone running up the stairs and down the stairs, Capra was so good at capturing energy of actors that you didn't have to worry about the camera moving from set to set. Mm-hmm. He could literally just put the camera in one place like a stage play and let the actors do their thing. It, the energy of this movie, the madcap energy of Cary Grant. Now, I love Cary Grant, but I like funny Cary Grant. I'm not mm-hmm. a huge fan of romantic Cary Grant. If we go to like Cary Grant in, in Hitchcock films, I like North by Northwest with that kind of aloof attitude, not so yes. much to catch a thief or notorious with the more heartthrobby. I like the silly, funny, kind of goofy. It's the same way I like George Clooney. I feel like that energy gets channeled the same way. I like silly, funny George Clooney more than I like serious and romantic George Clooney. What was your first exposure to this film? So I've seen this film maybe twice. The first time I saw it was with my dad. I have this memory. First of all, I do kind of have a like a girl crush on Cary Grant. I mean, I have a crush on Cary Grant. How could you? So not? like, I do kind of, even <laughs> though he he is very fun. He, I and I, but I do like that. Like go, like you said, I like that goofy sort of like girls boy sort of like Cary Grant versus like the romantic doe eyed Cary Grant. And mm-hmm. it sort of gives you that like he would be fun to hang around. Like he, you'd fall in love with him because he'd just be fun to have around. Kind of personality and I think you did capture like that feel that idea of this one house that you never really have to leave but it feels so large even though it feels like a very small space and um it's very hard for um people to for directors to capture that feeling of stage in film without it feeling like sort of hokey yeah. Or feeling like um like you're like you're stuck in a small space. And I think um this that film really does it for me. And and I it has a like a warm sort of like feeling, even though it's 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 fun. It's an interesting film, but it also has sort of like a warm feeling when I think about it. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. For me, it's like comfort food because if you think about it as a child watching this film. You are watching a live action cartoon. Like both of the aunts are very comical. They may as well come out of a Looney Tune or like a Disney film. They may as well be the fairy godmothers in Sleeping Beauty. They're running around almost like on their tiptoes, very flighty, very energetic. Then you've got Peter Lorre in his most Peter Lorre-ish persona as the assistant to Raymond Matthes' Jonathan Brewster, who is supposed to be a play on Boris Karloff. The funny thing is, in the original stage play, Boris Karloff played that character. So they make a joke in the movie how, oh, Johnny, I'm sorry. I, I did made- not know that. <laughs> yeah. Peter Lorre's like, I'm sorry I made you look like Boris Karloff. The joke was that Boris Karloff played that role in the original stage play, and they used the same joke of Boris Karloff looking like Boris Karloff. It was Karloff. That's funny. That's that's funny. And you know, when you bring up the fact that it is this sort of like comical, cartoony kind of 
kind of film. It's funny because it's one of those films that like, you know how like you, you see a film and you're like, man, like I wish I could explain to like my friends why they should see this film. But I know it's going to be a hard sell because yeah. of like the type of movie it is and the time period of it it is. But like, you know, if they actually sat down and watched it, they would really like it. But you got to like get them into it first. So that was my first film that I first saw that really changed my life because it is the film that I can honestly say made me not care if it was black and white or if it was old or if it wasn't animated because the energy was perfect for my young mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I will give you one of mine. Yeah. Um, so this film is uh, 1959. Very interesting watch for me. The first time I saw it was with my mom um, as a young person right around Christmas. We were watching a bunch of classics. And this has um, Lana Turner, John Gavin, and uh, Sandra D and Susan Connor. Um, this is uh, Imitation of Life. Love, but you've always had that. Yes, by telephone, by postcard, by magazine interviews. You've given me everything. Starring Lana Turner as the great stage star Laura Merritt, the men in her life, John Gavin, Dan O'Herlihy, Robert Alden. If the Dramatist Club wants to eat and sleep with you, you eat and sleep with them. It's disgusting. It pays off. Her daughter, Sandra Dee, Susan Conner, who was born to be hurt. I don't want to have to come through back doors or feel lower than other people or apologize for my mother's color. Don't say she can't help her color. But I can. Juanita Moore. Hers was the shame and the pain. There, Jane Johnson. You put your clothes on and get out of this place. And the incomparable Mahalia Jackson. And this film, it touches my heart. It does so much for me in so many ways. So if, I mean, like generally, if you guys don't know the the general overview of the film, you have um, a, basically a film about a mother and her daughter and the mother is a, they're black. The mother and the daughter are black, but the daughter um, presents white. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a sort of a concept of something called passing, um, which would be like, if you presented white, basically back in the day, you would just pretend to be white because it was easier to live life that way. The story of this girl and her mother and her kind of deciding to live her life this way and like the love of her mother and the devastation that she goes through, but like the understanding that she also has for this situation and like Lana Turner's character and like the, the, the heart that she has towards Annie as well. Like it's the whole plot. And then like the daughter situation with having the crush on, you know, it, there's a whole, a separate story there. But one of the things that I think about all the time um, that has stuck with me is at the end of that film, um, when her mother, sorry, spoiler alert, guys, yeah. <laughs> um, when her mother 
passes away um, and and she has and the daughter has been away for all of this time and um, they have this grand funeral for her Mahalia Jackson sings there's a huge procession flowers like the whole nine the funeral's huge and she the daughter comes running out and she like is sobbing and she says I killed my mother you know and it's just like the, it's a heartbreaking moment but the thing that always stuck with me is that and I don't know if this was done on purpose but there's this always been this idea of like white people funerals are generally very quiet mm -hmm. and like black funerals, we tend to emote a lot more. We tend to wail. We tend to cry a lot more. Like it's a lot, a lot of a louder sort of thing. And seeing this girl who has been passing as a white girl her whole life coming to this funeral, her black mother, and she is a black woman and seeing her sort of like emote in this very, mm black way you know even though this is she's she's been refined and pretending to be white this whole time like that specific part i think about it all the time i i i and it just pops up in my head i i don't even have to be thinking about the film and i think about it all the time it, it still gives me chills it's such a good film <sighs> yeah I've, I've only seen it once and you bring up a very interesting point that you have to be i i think in a certain mindset or in a certain social or cultural environment to appreciate certain films more than others. Because I remember watching that film, liking it, appreciating it, but it really didn't have anything resonating for me. Probably a, a 19, 20 year old boy slash teenager man entering manhood. So I, I've never bothered to revisit it, but mm -hmm. these are the conversations that really get me excited about movies again, movies that I've maybe seen once or have never seen, because once you hear someone's story, once you hear someone's history and emotional reaction to a film of how it changed them, it's the same way as if someone like gave you a record or, or asked you to listen to a song. This is me. You remember back in the day when we used to make mixtapes for the people like we, we had a crush yes. on? You know, like this is this was the emotion I went through last night when I made you this half of the mixtape. And then side B was when I woke up this morning and I felt energized and more confident because I made side A. That's what these conversations are like now when I talk to people all over the world about films that mean something to them. And when I go back exactly. and watch these films that I, maybe I've seen once or never seen before, it, it means something more either now or for the first time to me because this is something coming from someone I care about. Yes, please. I definitely recommend it. And the, the biggest part of it that I always bring up to people is somehow in this film that came out in 1959, um, no matter who you are watching this film, a white person, a person of color, at any point, this girl is the sort of the villain in this film. Even though there is like a clear understanding of why she's doing what she's doing, the this film that has managed to lift up this black woman in this cast, this mother, and make her into sort of like the hero, this beautiful born hero of this film. And they sort of villainize this, this white girl from all sides is very unheard of for a film at that time. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here. Definitely go back and watch it. I definitely recommend it to everybody. It's very cool. Okay, so mine, mine might be a little bit lost on you. You uh -huh. might surprise me. I don't know. We're going to France for this one. We're going a little bit foreign. This mm. one is 1967's Les Samurai. Qui êtes-vous? 
Aucune importance. Que voulez-vous Vous tuez. On croit que l'assassin était grand, jeune, en imperméable et chapeau. Et que tous les commissariats me fournissent au moins 20 coupables possibles. Directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, one of my favorite French New Wave directors. Now, give you some backstory before I jump into like the plot and overall idea of this film. I grew up in the Tarantino generation. I was yes. I was 12 years old when Reservoir Dogs came out. I saw Pulp Fiction in the theater, and it's like this indoctrination when you're that young and into film, and you get to start with Tarantino as his journey progresses. And you see all these films that he makes about bank robbers, hit men, criminal undergrounds, but also very colorful characters. And then you go and you see movies by Luc Besson, like La Femme Nikita, or The Professional, Leon. You start to recognize a pattern in the 90s and early 2000s, films about hit men and how these films try to humanize them. The 90s made hit men cool. And I guarantee you that in real life, assassins and hitmen are not cool. They are <laughs> they are bloodthirsty, in it for money, more like the, the the mob hitmen that you see that just have like dirty jobs and they have no emotional attachments to anything. This film I saw when I was like maybe 20, 21, and I saw it at a screening at our little artsy film theater in Salt Lake City. Now this is after I've seen The Professional. This is after I've seen Pulp Fiction. This is after I've seen all those Tarantino wannabes of the 90s about these hitmen. And it opened my eyes to understand that this story fueled all of those stories that I was so in love with from the 90s. Elaine Delon, gorgeous Frenchman. You know, I, I, I'm not going to be ashamed to say like that guy, gorgeous, gorgeous Frenchman. He is a French assassin for hire, but he operates by like this code of the samurai, almost like an Akira Kurosawa film would. He doesn't like any attachments come towards him. It's for the money, but he also is very stylish. He hangs out in swanky jazz bars. It really kind of makes that appeal of that lone wolf, that lone samurai character that we would see in the 90s. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed. <laughs> and here's, a, here's the thing about Melville's direction of this film. He paints all these beautiful palettes of color from scene to scene. You know, so like there's a lot of blues and blacks and shiny whites in the jazz club. But then when you go to Elaine Delon's apartment, it's very drab and brown, a lot of, you know, taupes and dark reds. But then the city of Paris is very vibrant as well. So as the story progresses, each scene has a different color palette. And we've seen filmmakers, especially Scorsese, he's talked about this film many, many times where he will use lighting and color palettes per scene, especially in Casino and Goodfellas, to kind of set the emotional state and condition of what that scene is in. This film does it beautifully. And there's very little dialogue. It's almost like you're watching kabuki theater sometimes, just like this nice haunting score as you're watching the emotions of these characters, especially Elaine Delon, going through the city of Paris, kind of on the run because a hit goes bad. And he kind of has to cover his tracks. And it's one of those films where it's like, you know, the character feels like there is no way out. He feels like there is just nothing but disaster waiting for him. 
but he's not going to accept it. He's going to do everything he can to avoid it, even though he knows it's coming one way or another. And I love that in films. and I love that in characters. And this film, when I first saw it, it changed my mind and changed my life because it made me realize that all of my heroes, Scorsese, Tarantino, De Palma, they've all seen this film. And they love it so much that they start channeling its DNA into their own works. Because like we were talking about, it happened one night. It is a spawning pool for this kind of lone wolf hitman story that was made so glamorous in the 90s. I am absolutely obsessed with this. <laughs> I, first of all, I have like heard about this movie in passing, but it's one of those films you're like, all right, I'll get to it. And like never really see it. Um, just looked it up. Has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, It looks amazing. I literally had goosebumps listening to you talk about it. And that sort of like film noir feeling, especially when you have films that like sort of exist uh, hinging on a feeling versus dialogue. Mm -hmm. I love that like sort of like quiet confidence that a filmmaker can have with just using like lighting and sounds and scenes and camera work to like tell a whole story without having to do too much. Because that's... You would usually, I mean, if you're a hitman, I doubt you'd have much to say. Right. <laughs> and so, like, there's a lot of films, the hitmen that have these huge, like, they go on long speeches before they commit a murder and they diatribes. And it's, no, this is perfect. <laughs> it is just skulking around, kind of being weird, sneaky, and quiet, and just the shadow of the city, like, helping you out. It's, perfect it sounds amazing you Absolutely. have to watch it yeah so that's my number two definitely check that one out and it, the the great thing is is like criterion has done a great job with it and it was on hbo max for a long time i think it's still on there and it is on the criterion mm. channel too so you know like i said after i saw it in this little arts theater it took me a long time to find it i think i found it eventually in a library and i bootlegged a copy of it so i could have it you know but now now i have it on it is one of those films right. where it's like <laughs> i went out of my way to procure even like the shoddiest version that was fuzzy and and not the most perfect copy but you still appreciated it and it was yours you know and it's special it's even more special that way when you get like that crappy copy because you're like man like i was watching this when nobody was watching this yeah. i was watching it before it was streaming yeah like, i had to go find it so please do not judge me for my third pick never i, I am First and foremost, a girl. I'm a girly girl. And this list would not exist if I didn't have a girly girl film on this list. So um, one of the films, so I was a a theater kid in high school. And um, one of my favorite plays that I ever did was uh, Pygmalion. Oh. So in uh, 1964, uh, as you might or may not know, Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison came out with My Fair Lady. You see this creature with her curbstone English that'll keep her in the gutter till the end of her days? Yeah, what's that you say? <laughs> in six months, I'll make a duchess of this draggletail gutter snipe. You expect me to get into that? How do you do? How do you do? So you came here to rescue her from worse than death, eh? Cheerio, Eliza. Ah! The rain in... And that is probably 
it's a musical and I know that musicals are an acquired taste for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, And there are some musicals that I simply will not do. I am sorry, y'all. I am not the biggest fan of Grease. I know that's like the musical that everybody clings to and that's like everybody's boo. It's not my favorite. I don't think that the songs align very well with the film, Um, but you know, that's just me. Um, it feels like a film where the songs were written first and they kind of situated a film around it. But to me, My Fair Lady is uh, sort of like this classic story that already existed. And the reason I like the story the most is because Audrey Hepburn is, this may, you know, may or may not be everybody's feeling on it, but Audrey Hepburn to me is sort of like the antithesis to Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. She's like this very like doe-eyed, like princessy almost, you know, breakfast at Tiffany's, very like posh, refined, turtleneck wearing woman. And having her be in this film with Rex Harrison, where Rex is not really a love interest, but just sort of like um a weird father figure of sorts. Um, a daddy, if you will. I always considered him like a hobbyist. <laughs> he, he's like a, ve- a very, just a very like man of all, man about town, jack yeah. of all trades kind of guy yeah. who kind of just collected this girl and made her like a, a pet project. And like, while to some people that may seem like so like demeaning and gross, it is sort of like my dream for a rich man to just find me and go, here, let's just make you better. Let's make you a better <laughs> version of yourself. And like, we'll use songs and dances. And, and you know, that's all beside the point. But having this character who is sort of like this unrefined, just like not together version of herself and watching this man sort of like mold her. And then after he molds her, sort of like watching her find herself and say, well, I don't need you anymore. And then he realizes, well, maybe I, I kind of like having you around. That kind of, mm, I don't know. And then having her be like, well, you know what? I don't need to be here, but I kind of want to be here. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll be here because I want to be here, not because I need you, not because you're necessary. And that felt good to me because that's the kind of, feeling that I want for my, cause you know, you watch a lot of love stories, especially like the Marilyn love stories mm-hmm. or the, you know, um, you know, some of the other ones. And it feels very like wanting and like very like longing. And this sort of felt like a, thank you. I appreciate you for your services, but you know, <laughs> you are not necessary to my life, but also like, if you act right, I will keep you around and you your money and you are not necessary you know and yeah. it, that kind of story to me for the t- especially for the time and for my personality it felt more like me yeah not you know chasing after a man sort of having a man chase after you and even as he was like helping her he was sort of chasing after her to help her yeah. you know trying to like chase after like getting her skills so he was like very devoted to her in the the whole film um, but in different ways. And I don't know. I really enjoyed that. And it's one of the films that sort of inspired the way I want my love life to be. Oh. I mean, I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not huge into musicals either, but the ones that are important that, you know, here's the thing. To me, it's all about the characters. If you've got likable characters and a likable story, 
it doesn't matter if there's songs. And honestly, I'm not a huge fan of the songs. And I've, I've seen the production. I was never in it in high school. That was one of the ones I skipped out. I'm like, they don't want me in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait until like West Side Story or Guys and Dolls shows up and I'll jump, jump into that one. But with this one, I mean, I'm such a huge fan of Rex Harrison and, and Audrey Hepburn. How do you feel about them doing Julie Andrews Dirty? Because she was... Eliza Doolittle on Broadway. She originated that character and she thought she was a shoe in to be Eliza in uh. the movie. And instead they put Audrey Hepburn in it who can't sing. The girl that did the voice for Maria in West Side Story did her singing voice. And so Julie Andrews went and made Mary Poppins instead. So all worked out well for her. But what do you think that movie would have been like with, with Julie Andrews in that role? You know, I think that it, it could have been good, but I think Julie Andrews has more of a, I mean, as you can see, even from like, and I, I'm not trying to, you know, pin her into one role, but through The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, she has sort of this like motherly quality to her. Like she wants to take care of people. And I can't see her sort of having this like almost dumb doughish mm. quality to her. Like I can't see her having this like unrefined, like I'm just going to stomp around and kind of do what I want. Yeah. Eliza has to be waifish. She has to be yeah. a little, a little fragile physically on the outside, but determined on the inside. Yeah. And I really think like that, a can do yeah. attitude. I, I like how Audrey and, played and that I, role. Me too. I, I, I think Julie may have been a little, may have come off a little soft while the role does require like a little bit of softness. I think the, the reason that I liked it so much was because she kind of did have, even through like all of the, you know, learning the things it's always felt like at any point she could just walk away and be like, I am very done with this. And I don't feel like I get that same feeling from Julie. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. I did not know that they, they had that kind of thing. They had that battle going on. And you know, the huh. same thing almost happened. You even talked about it in one of your episodes where Truman Capote originally wanted Marilyn Monroe to be in Breakfast at Tiffany's and Audrey Hepburn mm -hmm. got the part instead. So it seems like there's kind of like a, a pattern there that might be worth like researching more. It's like, how many roles did Audrey Hepburn really get? Audrey, that scoop people up from people. <laughs> I need to do an Audrey, we need to do an Audrey episode because now I need to know. Because I do kind of feel like... <sighs> I don't know. Like it, it feels sort of like every movie that she's in that I think about her being in where she was great. It she's good in it, but it does sort of feel like she's just kind of dropped into it. Yeah. Like I never feel like the role was ever written for Audrey. It feels like she's just good in the role. A hundred percent. Okay. So for my last one, a, a little bit darker, I feel like I started light and I've worked my way dark, but maybe that, down into the depths. Maybe that's just me. I love character dramas. I love character dramas like I talked about in La Samurai that reek of desperation. I love when desperation is caught on film because it can make even the most unsavory and unlikable characters important and interesting to you. Like you are making an emotional investment with someone who may not be the, the nicest guy or the right guy to be emotionally involved with. But you know, I love movies like that. Yeah. Ooh. But man, there is something about like this animal instinct that we all have where it's like we want to help that dog that's backed in a corner. We want to we want to like help someone make the right choice because they've just made nothing but wrong choices their entire life and this might be the moment where we can fix it. 
is 1959's Tiger Bay with Haley Mills. A star whose performances have electrified the whole of Europe, Horst Buchholz, in his first British film, Tiger Bay. Behind the waterfront of Cardiff is Tiger Bay, melting pot of many races. Into this colorful community comes a Polish seaman looking for his girl. Who the hell are you? What are you doing here? My girl lives here. Well, she doesn't live here now. I do. Award-winning director J. Lee Thompson, who gave you Ice Cold in Alex, now brings you another dramatic triumph in entertainment. Yvonne Mitchell at her brilliant best in a compelling role. Did I catch you? Did I catch you? Did I catch you? These are the eyes of a child. A child that is different. Haley Mills. Put him out! Drop that gun. Don't move. I've got you covered. It's loaded. What did you see? You tell me what you saw. Here is a child with great talent. A talent inherited from a famous actor, her father, John Mills. John Mills as the police superintendent who cannot break a strange bond of friendship. <laughs> directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who would go on to direct just a, a, a plethora of films. He did some really great westerns. He did some really great crime movies. And then he finished off his career doing Death Wish sequels and Charles Bronson films for Canon Pictures, which are guilty pleasures of mine. I love them. But when you go back and watch his earlier work, it's like, wow, this guy was like a masterful filmmaker. And then he ended up doing Schlock, essentially. So the story of this one takes place in like the ironworks industrial areas of London and Haley Mills is this tomboy. She's like 12 or 11 years old. She has no friends cuz the boys don't want to play with her because she's a girl, but she can kick their ass. So what happens is there is a sailor played by Horst Bullschultz. He comes home to find his girlfriend has been unfaithful to him. And in a fit of rage, he shoots her. Haley Mills sees it through the door because it's the upstairs neighbor. But she understands why he did it. She sees him hide the gun. And later she goes and retrieves it and takes it to the playground to show the boys because she thinks it's going to make her popular with this group mm. of boys. Like, hey, look what I got. I got a gun. But now as everything's starting to like be investigated by the police she becomes friends with this guy. He's a lonely sailor, doesn't have a friend in the world. She's a lonely tomboy. And then we start getting this relationship built between them, kind of like Leon and Natalie Portman in The Professional. You know, it's a grown man and it's a young girl, but in this film, there's like no weirdness or, you know, weird sexual chemistry or, or, or attraction. It is simply two lonely people who have found each other. And the rest of the film is them wondering how they can get him away from the police, but still maintain a friendship because she really, in her mind, has nothing left for her. She would follow him to the end of the world because they've created this friendship and this bond. So this sense of desperation that you know is almost impossible to actually work out, that's the energy that you are sitting in for this entire movie. And it's just Brilliant. She is amazing. It was her first role. Like she's like 10 or 11 years old before Parent Trap or Pollyanna. She is just mm. amazing. 
And there's all these scenes where she's being interrogated by the police and she is just like a compulsive liar, but she's brilliant at it. You know, so it's like I said, these broken people, she's broken at 12 and this guy's probably lived a broken life. And somehow they find each other through disaster, through crime, through a hideous act. But you're almost like forgiving of it because you know it was a crime of passion and so does she. You know, I think I saw part of Tiger Bay one day on like Turner Classic Movie and I never watched the end of it. And I think I probably should have and I just never thought to go back and watch it. But I do know the like the beginning part of the film that you were talking about sounded very familiar and I love that. I just the number one, you are very into like these very dark, gritty sort of like underbelly films. Um but like they always have this little like piece of like shining Mm -hmm. like a little nickel in the in in the little bit of the dirt and like i think this guy first of all um having a character who like commits a crime and like someone sees them commit this crime and not only understands why the crime was committed but also like starts to just involve themselves in it as a way to help Mm -hmm. um i think one side of us as we watch that go like girl stay in the house like stop <laughs> but also being very aware that like that we we've had those moments where we see um somebody like going through something and and we know like if we jump into it we're going to get into the middle of the mess but like you know sometimes it's worth it and um also knowing that like if she doesn't jump into the middle of the mess there's literally no film so um i think it's th- i'm gonna have to sit down and watch this because um i watched the beginning of it i liked it and then i think i just had to go somewhere there's a yeah. beautiful there's a beautiful transfer of it on youtube on the retrospective channel which if you're not following the retrospective channel check it out it's got so many great classic films and it's a great transfer you can watch it for free and it's definitely one that someone who is appreciator of like those dramas will will definitely want in their in their catalog for sure. Well, this was a lot of fun, Nikki. Thank you so much. Like I feel like I know you so much more and like it, it's interesting like we went different paths. Yours was a little bit more like a sandwich. Hokey. You had well no, you you, <laughs> you you had happy on 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 both ends and then you had drama in the middle and mm-hmm. mine started light and just went down a darker path. But again, it, it gives you more insight because I mean, you know me, I I'm a happy person. I enjoy watching these dark dramatic films because maybe I just haven't had enough dark drama in my life that it gives me enough emotional response to make those films mean more. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I definitely need a little bit more of like that mystery underbelly film in my life. Um, I generally shy away from like very romantic and very sappy films, mm-hmm. but you know me, I'm like a, a good mystery I like a good twist ending. Twist endings are my favorite. Yeah. So, um, and I think, well, I guess My Fair Lady doesn't really have a twist ending, but Imitation of Life has a little bit of a twist at the end. Um, and it happened one night. It, I mean, it happens. Really <laughs> it happens. It didn't happen. It did. So, I mean, I think that our our films that impacted us the most really kind of do reflect our channels, though. Yeah. And reflect our personalities pretty well, so. I think this was really good and also now i gotta i'm gonna have to go watch the samurai because i literally had goosebumps while you were talking about it <laughs> well please do please do well your your podcast seems to be back in full swing again what do you got coming up 
We are, so the next um, episode we'll be doing is actually some like it hot. Um, And then we'll be doing, um, we'll be doing, I think the next episode will be like a good Hitchcock um, episode because I haven't done Hitchcock in a while and you know, he's my favorite. I I was thinking about it the other day, you know, we talked about this on one of the episodes. We both started our shows in the same week and your first two episodes were Hitchcock. And the first yes. episode of yours I ever listened to was the Psycho episode, and I remember it very well. I knew it was like uh, you were a person that I wanted to get to know and get to talk to, and it's amazing that we're doing this now. Every time I tell people about your podcast, I'm always like, "Go listen to his podcast. It sounds so much better than mine." <laughs> I mean, I can't. I like. I literally. I I tell you all the time, and I know you think I'm just gassing you up, but I'm. My podcast is very, as you guys probably know, it's very chatty. It's very this. It's very just me talking. And Tony, like your podcast is so polished. It's so good. I could take out any sound bite and like put it somewhere and it would sound like I took it from a television show. It would sound like I took it straight off of like a straight from a newscaster. It's (laughs) you are absolutely perfect. And I am always thankful that you have accepted my friendship and that you actually enjoy my podcast because I 100% enjoy yours and I cannot wait until we meet up again. Yeah, we'll we'll keep doing this. We'll keep podcasting. We'll keep getting people watching these movies. So you can find Nikki's pretty much anywhere podcasts are played. I have links to her show on my website, thecultworthy.com. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd to see all my latest reviews. I will see you later. Talk to you soon. Cheers.